E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Philippe Newland of Duclo La Vinicole, the distributor working with Bordeaux Wine. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm very well, Levy. How are you doing? Very nice to see you. You're a Wall Street guy. And, uh, originally, you used to do uh, work on the finance. You know, Levy, when you graduate from uh, an expensive graduate school program and you have to pay off that student debt, yeah, I did I did that for what I thought would be three years and turned into 14. So, But as a native New Yorker, I think we all, we all have to drive a yellow cab and we all have to work on the street at some point. I, I went to uh, Columbia School for International Affairs, and it was aptly named. And uh, I ended up, you know, trying to find a job in New York in 1992. And I basically interviewed with everybody from Catholic Relief Services to Merck, and uh, thanks to some languages, was able to, to get a job that paid some bills. What was the street like back then? It was wacky and wild. Uh, it was liars poker type stuff, and. Uh, you know, uh, it was the days before electronic brokers and uh, people used to spoof people on uh, pricing over the broker boxes. It was sort of the stuff that you see in movies. Did you work with Charlie Sheen at that time? Or uh, I did not, but uh, the big one was Liar's Poker. Yeah, uh, that, I remember that book. That, yeah. that book is fantastic. Yeah, it was, it was uh, not too many women, a lot of bravado, a lot of smack talking, and uh, it, was, it was fun. In all honesty, working there is really what got me into wine. Boss of mine at the time said, what are you doing taking two weeks off? (laughs) We don't really do that around here. And I told him I was off to South Africa, and he asked if he could come along for the ride. And uh, he he really introduced me to wine. Um, And this is after growing up in a French family where from the age of 10, uh, my grandparents in the Loire Valley were were pouring you know bad Cabernet Franc into my water glass. So uh, yeah, I discovered sort of later in life wine in South Africa. Why were you going down there? At the time, it was 1994, and a buddy of mine from college called me up and he said, "Hey, uh, you want to go to South Africa?" And I immediately said yes. Didn't even think. And I asked him, "What are we doing?" And he told me that he was working in sports promotion for a major boxing promoter who happened to be South African. And he told me that he had convinced his boss to take a leg of the Stones tour. This was uh, the Voodoo Lounge tour down to Johannesburg. And they had never officially played on the continent of Africa. Um, So I wanted to go just to go because Mandela had been released from Robbins Island. And I just wanted to see the depth of change that was taking place and add on to that the Rolling Stones concert. And then when the boss finds out, the Wall Street boss finds out, he's like, yeah, I want to go to that Stones concert too. And so that's that's how uh, I ended up in South Africa, and that's how I ended up discovering the wines of Stellenbosch. I saw that concert, but I saw it in San Francisco in Candlestick Park, the Voodoo Lounge tour. Yeah, it was a pretty wild show. They had a lot of stuff on stage. It was a lot uh, of stuff. Yeah, like blow up things, huge and, balloons. And, yeah, uh, and it was a cool opportunity because my my first reaction after saying yes to South Africa when I was asked about uh, going to see the Stones, they said, "Well, yeah, and do you have a photographer?" And uh, with that, I got to spend two nights on stage, on stage, photographing the stones for the promoter. What I remember is like Mick Jagger running around a lot. 
Like a lot. A lot. You know, you don't have that narrow uh, a butt and that low uh, fat count uh, unless you do a lot of gymnastics. Yeah. So did you talk with them or were you like, hey, Charlie, what's up, man? You know, it was funny. We we were in the press tent uh, the day before the show and um, my friend Jim asked me if I'd like to see the stadium. So we started walking down behind the stage and uh, we stopped. We, were, we hadn't seen each other in a while, so we were catching up. It was literally the day after we, I had flown in. And all of a sudden I heard these clomping boots and uh, looked up and saw sort of these lime green Doc Martens coming down. And, and there was Keith. And he's like, oi, boys, how are you? And all of a sudden, you know, some big roadie from Michigan told us to sit down. And I think we were maybe six people. And we're like, well, what's that all about? He goes, listen, man, just sit down, okay? And so we we sat down and, you know, there were a few military, you know, sort of younger guys with bolt action rifles. And uh, we sit down and all the lights go out. And then boom, all the lights went on on stage and the Stones ripped through half a dozen songs for their sound check. So it was it was a series of, and then I got to discover the wines of Stellenbosch. I mean, it was just the full package. So what was the connection there? I mean, how did the wine part come into the... The flight down to South Africa from New York into Joburg is roughly 15 hours. And so if you're going to go down there, you're going to stay a little while. So we started off, uh, it was funny, we were in Cape Town. I drank beer. Uh, we literally went out to Stellenbosch. I, I mean, I didn't know. And then we went up to Joburg and it was after the concerts that we started traveling around the country a bit. And we ended up in this crazy sort of hippie, it doesn't sound, it sounds incongruous, but it was this relay and chateau in the middle of nowhere, South Africa, run by a couple of old British hippies that had an, an extensive wine list. And as I mentioned before, my boss was with us. He ordered a bottle. I remember to this day, it was, uh, it was from a property called Mere Lust. It was a Bordeaux blend, oddly enough, called Rubicon, and the vintage was 88. And when, when uh, I tried that thing, I turned to my girlfriend at the time and this August, we're celebrating 20 years of marriage. Uh, and I said, when we get back to New York, we're going to take a wine course. So it was really the light bulb moment. I mean, that worked out pretty cool. Like it, it was, Stones, uh, private concerts. Stones, you know, uh, the wine thing. Um, we, we pulled our money together and went on uh, the cheapest safari we could go on and nearly got killed by a bull elephant. I mean, yeah, we had a few experiences. You know, Impala seems to be the lowest thing on the food chain, and we would have that with cocktails every night. So you get back to New York, and what happens? So I got back to New York, and we signed up for what was then the class. It's not like today where you have you know any number of different uh, options. Back then, it was it was Kevin's Rally, um, Windows on the World. But if you recall, we had had a bombing problem down at the Trade Center uh, in '93. So Kevin was teaching this thing in the Marriott Hotel down at the Financial Center. And we did that, and it was just one of those things. I mean, I did it because I wanted to learn something. I felt I've got this French heritage. Apparently, my grandparents have been serving me crap. I, I should find out what's out there. And, uh, you know, rest in peace, Grandma. I'll call me Algonquin. But, uh, She's not listening uh, to listen. the show. <laughs> you, do, you don't know her. Uh, so, <laughs> we... Uh, Aaron, uh, my girlfriend at the time, and I took Kevin's class, and it was just one of those things. I, I, I was tasting stuff and trying to write down my scribble, and then Kevin was talking about what he was getting in the wines. So I'm like turning to Aaron going, hey, I, I think I'm picking up some of this stuff. And uh, by the time the eight-week or whatever it was class wrapped up, I, I said to Kevin, uh, Professor Israeli at the time, that's what I called him, I want to take your next class. And Kevin said, kid, this is it. I, I teach, you know, bankers and lawyers and traders like yourself uh, an eight-week course where you learn something about wine and people will come to meet other people and do whatever they do after class when they're somewhat inebriated. This is all I do. But if you want to keep going, there's this lady who actually passed this crazy exam, the master of wine exam, um, which is this English thing. And she's, she's started up this school. It's, it's just getting going. And it was Mary Ewing Mulligan. And this was back when she had, I think it was like an eighth floor office in one of those cavernous streets uh, in the garment district with really uncomfortable chairs and a smelly carpet. And so anyway, I, I started on the WSET track. 
And eventually I decided for the final year that I would just teach myself because I couldn't deal with those chairs anymore. So, and I, and I had the banker salary. So I started buying all the wines at home and I'd put them in a little half bottles and, you know, try some and then, you know, put it in the fridge and had them numbered and Aaron would pull them out the next few days and I'd try and see if I could identify them. So it was really took the class and then said, Hey, I think there's, maybe I'm just kidding myself, but I think there's an aptitude and I'm enjoying this. And so once I started, I was all in. I was at work on the trading floor. I'd be opening the Wine Spectator book. They used to produce these books with all the different wines and vintages and scores and stuff. And I'd just be checking up on stuff, trying to see what was what in the world. And uh, eventually, when I passed the diploma, that was back in 2000, Mary did something shocking. She asked me if I would teach for her. So I started teaching WSET classes. And uh, yeah. What was that like? Um, well, when you start teaching WSET classes, uh, they give you the stuff that they don't want to teach, right? So I started, I, I taught some intermediate and I taught some advanced and I taught like, uh, if Aldo Sam is listening, he'll be very upset. I taught Eastern Europe. No one wanted to teach that. And South Africa, well, that was cool because that, that was the one that got things moving. And the one that I really enjoyed, I was given the opportunity to teach the first intermediate course in Spanish. There had been requests, uh, mostly from, from restaurant owners, saying that they would like other members of their staff to have some wine knowledge, uh, Spanish-speaking staff. And so we put that together. And I'm, that, that's, that was probably the proudest uh, moment for me teaching uh, WSET was kicking that off. It, you know what it is? WSET is rigorous. And a lot of people wonder about MSMW. This track of WSET, which can ultimately lead to MW, it's, you have to remember where it's coming from. It's, it's the British industry. So it's really a way for people to wrap their heads, not just around viticulture and Vinny and the different classic regions and then beyond, but it's also to wrap their heads around the business. And coming from a business background, I thought that that was a good approach for me. And, you know, working on Wall Street, it was, it was fine and it was fun in the beginning. <laughs> but for anyone out there who's listening to this, who's worked on Wall Street, you know that it went through some meta changes and it, it became less and less fun. And I was starting to look at this thing as potentially a jumping off point to get onto the business side of this industry. So teaching just helped convince me that uh, I, I was really into this. Did you meet other people in the Wall Street game who were like, yeah, I'm into the wine thing. I'm thinking about doing a business and wine. Mm, you know, I a lot of the guys I worked with were hard drinkers, um, but it wasn't so much wine. But what I did find is that in taking the classes at WSET, I ran into a lot of non-wine industry people who were looking to make that jump. Uh, Christy Canterbury, Jennifer Simonetti, uh, Dilek Canner. Dilek was, uh, is a graduate of Columbia and with a master's in economics. And she was the person who eventually said to me in her inimitable Turkish accent, you are going to get out of what you're doing because you clearly should go into wine. And, uh, it was Dilek who, who got me an interview with the man that she, she used to butt heads with uh, Josh Green over at Wine and Spirits, and she was the one who pushed me to interview for the job of tasting director. What was that interview like? Josh is super, you know, he's just a super smart guy and a really nice guy. Um, I think he was very interested in the fact that I had multiple languages. You know, my, my mom is French, hence this name that I spell all the time, Philippe. And... Uh, uh, when I finished undergrad, I went into the Peace Corps, fully thinking that I would go to some French-speaking country in Western Africa or hopefully the Caribbean. And uh, so I had those languages, and I think Josh really liked that. Um, I had worked retail a bit for fun, and uh, I had done a little bit of uh, restaurant work as I was putting myself through, through Columbia. You know, and then the other thing is in publishing, it's how much are you willing to accept as uh, what we call a salary? Uh, <laughs> and and I, I guess I was willing to take whatever they were offering and and w you know, we had a good conversation. I must have struck him as someone who was 
honest and hardworking, and you know he he learned better later. But uh, pulled the rug over his eyes. Yeah. Uh, no, I spent two years working with uh, with Josh and, and Tara, and uh, and that that was actually interesting because, you know, for me it was my first job out of finance, and I thought, man, I'm just a kid being released in the candy store. I mean, this is great. And uh, I had passed a diploma a few years before, and I was taking the you know the track to go on to MW and. And Mary was my mentor. And I thought, okay, I mean, here it is. I get paid something and I get to taste all of these wines and do it with some of you know the sharpest people. Peter Liam was uh, on staff. He was actually my predecessor. He passed me the baton of the tasting department and he was covering any number of regions, including Austria and Germany and man, there's so much to be learned from him. So for me, it was just a great opportunity to really, really go deep with people who really knew their stuff and also to meet a lot of people from the industry. Because even though I wasn't a critic, being the tasting director at a respected magazine uh, just leads to a lot of opportunity. People come in, they want to meet with you, they want to talk with you, they want to taste you on their wines. So I really felt like it was a great place to be, to study, to taste, learn for the ultimate goal, which was to pass the MW exam and go into the, the biz side of the biz. What was the style like in the office? I mean, what was going on? Work hard. Uh, at WNS, we received so many samples. I mean, I, I think it's now it's gone way beyond what we used to receive, but there were times when you can even walk across the floor of the tasting room because we had so much stuff to catalog and to uh, put into racks. And you've had Tara on this show. Tara is amazing. I mean, that she's exactly the sort of person, if you owned a magazine, she's exactly the sort of person that you would want running the thing. Because she is so exacting, so detailed, and uh, so passionate, and so it was, it was tough. I had I had never worked in publishing. I didn't know all the appellations of the world. <laughs> you know, I was I, I felt like I had a pretty good grip on France. Um, so it was it was tough, uh, but at the same time, it really paid off because we would invite some of the best people in uh, the respective categories to come in and to taste with us. And there was so much to be learned from those people. You know, they were selected by category. I mean, we had our Greek crew. And let me tell you, with Tara on staff, you had to have a good Greek crew. <laughs> and we had our champagne heads and our Berg hounds. And uh, so it, it was an amazing opportunity to listen to all of these people who probably had a whole lot more knowledge and experience uh, than me. Um, so I, I really felt like it was a gift, honestly. I mean, not the salary part. That was certainly not a gift, but the uh, the actual workplace environment. Did you do any writing when you were there? I did, you know, and I, I wrote this article on the best wines for hamburgers. and uh, Never goes out of style, it, that it one. Never goes out of style, although I feel like the current Vogue is all about pizza. But... Um, I wrote this article and I, I fancy myself a decent writer. Uh, the only problem is I got sent, sent out into the field and I was told, you're going to meet so-and-so at this spot just off of university on 13th street. And uh, so you'll interview him and he has some pretty cool ideas about pairing Loire Valley wines with hamburger. And I said, okay, cool. And I made a total rookie mistake. The person I was supposed to meet with got swapped out by their manager and so I interviewed that person, not fully understanding that it wasn't the person I had been sent to interview. So when I wrote the article, the name of the other person appeared in the article. And with that, Josh just, you know, he was like, you got to take the person's business card or something. So basically my responsibilities ended up being writing the intro to the tasting section because, uh, you know, I messed up on the first run. Never missed a business card since. <laughs> I have not missed a business card since. I, I often forget to bring my own, but I never forget to take them. So what was the next thing for you? I mean, what happens? Two years with uh, with Josh and the team at 
WNS. And uh, then it was interesting. It was 2008. And if you, if you remember, the economy was sort of falling off a cliff. And, uh, but I got a couple of phone calls. I got a phone call from a guy named Richard Brierley, who was allegedly being sent back to London by Christie's. And uh, he asked me to come in and interview for, uh, for the head of North America. That sounds like such a big title, right? Uh, for the wine department at Christie's. So I, I did, I did go through that process. And, um, I was also asked to interview for a job with what was then a small importing company run by a guy named Michael Quintus who I had met through his assistant, Constance Savage. Connie and I had been uh, in the same house out in Yonville during the uh, Master of Wine week-long course. And I guess she had gone back to to Cobran and told her boss, yeah, it's, it was kind of weird. We had this banker guy in the house with us, not quite sure what. And so to make a long story short, Michael was getting ready to leave co-brand and he had basically asked me out for lunch a few years prior because my specialty was currency risk. I was one of these guys who looked at political economy and sort of advised folks on shifting out of one currency into another in their investment portfolio or in their reserves portfolio. I used to work a lot with uh, Latin American central banks. And so Michael called me up. He knew that I had been at Wine and Spirits. He knew that I had been a banker and we had gotten along very well over lunch a few years before. And he said, Hey, you know, I've got this company. It's still a fledgling company and I'm looking for someone to help me run the Northeast. And I said to him, well, I have no idea how to do that. And he said, it's okay. Don't worry. You know, we'll, we'll teach you how to do it. So uh, that's what I ended up going with. And uh, I felt very fortunate. I think I was employee number seven at Ventus. And had the opportunity to basically see most of it. I didn't really see the importing side, but I learned how to deal with distributors, which uh, is kind of an art. Uh, and the only way to do that is to dive in and and rely on your colleagues who are old salts to sort of tell you, yeah, don't worry about that. That happens all the time. So that was my job. For four years, I worked with the team there and basically built up the Northeastern distribution for, for that company. And that, that was an amazing experience. I mean, I, I really touched a lot of stuff in my first, you know, commercial job in the wine industry. And, um, and it's funny because when I was a banker and I was feeling down, there were days when you'd feel pretty down, you know, the, even the paycheck didn't, uh, didn't necessarily, uh, calm that down. Um, I had interviewed at Cobrand for a job, selling as a rep and um i passed the exam there and they had this crazy long exam and they basically told me hey look what are you doing i mean you're gonna start off poor as a church mouse you know you've got a wife um don't do that and i have so much respect for people who start out from scratch and, and build up their book and the rest of it but with this first position i was i guess working in a different tier and uh you had to learn fast yeah learn fast what were some of the takeaways to that? Um, one of my major takeaways was there are a lot of people working in the wine industry who could just be working anywhere else. Um, you know, you you have people uh, come to this apartment and, and chat with you who are passionate, and and we think that that might be the world of wine. But the truth is, a lot of boxes have to get sold, and there are a lot of people working at distributors who you know, just they do it because that's what they have to do and they're not necessarily passionate about what they do and but with that said there are some people who are amazing and you always gravitate to those people and they it's the old 80 20 rule they'll do 80 percent of your business um but the other thing that i took away from it was that the size of these distributors the consolidation that has occurred across this industry and it's not just the only industry right everything is consolidating with the uh, much more transparent nature of information in this day and age. Uh, the smaller good stuff that we all love to drink and sell, it just gets lost because it's not the stuff that most of these folks can bang out pallets of. And so, you know, I think that one of the hardest dilemmas facing uh, the better importers the folks who have 
books that are really personal and uh, and well thought out, they have a really difficult time, uh, more and more so, in this environment where distributorships keep getting swallowed up into these larger uh, entities that, again, if you're not hitting the right margin point and the right volume point, um, you're just not important. So that was something that kind of, I I can't use the word disappoint, uh, but sort of impacted me. Like as a lover of wine, I thought, man, I mean, where are we going here? I do not want to end up in a world where, you know, barefoot rules. Um, Now watch out, you know, I'm getting to have a contract put out on me for saying that. So as a wine lover, it said to me that if I was going to continue moving forward in this industry with some sense of just integrity, that uh, I'd want to get involved with the sort of folks who who have a, a passion and um, and a focus and an appreciation for the stuff that they're working with. So what was it like being part of a team that's building a company coming out of 08? So coming out of 08... Uh, I think the nature of your question is what was it like, you know, dealing with those times, yeah. right? It was, you know, it was, it was a time when for better or for worse, expectations were kind of low, <laughs> which, which played for me because I, here I was wet behind the ears. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And, uh, you know, if, if things weren't going a hundred percent, you could all say, God damn, this economy sucks. So, uh, it gave me the long leash that I needed to figure stuff out, you know, and it also created a real bond between the folks on the team. I mean, we were literally four people. It was three guys and one gal, and we were, we were covering the entire United States for this, this importer. And we got pretty close because we, we all had our horror stories and, I have to take my hat off to to Michael Quintus because by hook or by crook, and man, I don't think he slept more than two hours a night um, the times that I was working there. He managed to get through that tough time, and we managed to we managed to make something worthwhile. So it was one of these baptisms by fire, um, and the fire was both good and bad. So Michael tapped you partly because of your experience managing currency risk and. How do you do that? And that seems like a key moment for that with the 08 recession. You know, it was interesting because if you stop and think about the business, this importing side of the business, and we all, we work in this fractured market and the wine market, unlike the spirits market, is a market where there's, well, there's competition in both, but you don't have major, major brands, um, not that many. And I think the point I'm trying to come around to is there aren't huge opportunities for huge margin products. So the currency thing is kind of important because if you get a large move on the dollar, if your dollar weakens and you're an importer, man, I mean, if you set your contract in euros and all of a sudden now you're paying up five, 10%, that's a big chunk of your margin. So I think that the idea of bringing me on, uh, that was sort of just a little bit of icing on the cake. Hopefully, hopefully that's what it was and not the primary reason, was that I had an understanding. And there were times, I, I'll never forget, we we had one moment where we had bought too many Australian dollars. And what do you do? Do you just stick them in uh, an account? But that's money that you, you don't have to use, right? And when you're when you've got a young company and you're trying to get your cash flow going, um, that's that's complicated. So I helped out with some tools that I had in my toolbox from my previous job, and and we got through that. But uh, yeah, we talked a lot. We talked often about what was going on in uh, capital markets and whether it was the right time to buy euros or whether we should wait. You know, would there be an opportunity to get them cheaper and? And obviously, even if you have exclusives on certain brands, you want to be competitive in the category. So, yeah, it was it was important. When you look at 
the history of wines that have been popular at different times. I imagine that I would look at that one way, but you might look at it like, yeah, that was a really good conversion rate, <laughs> like at that time. You know, you know what I mean? Well, yeah. I mean, right now, boy, if you are an importer of Canadian ice wine, you're cleaning up. Uh, <laughs> but back then, I remember there was a time when uh, some of the commodity currencies were pretty inexpensive. So importing wine from Argentina and Chile, importing wine from Argentina, all you have to wait is for two weeks, right? And then some other corruption crisis occurs, and then you get you can get the wine for less money if you can get it out of the country with all the controls that they have. But uh, yeah, there are times that were favorable to certain categories, for sure. <laughs> That's where you're going to leave it? That's it? Well, I mean, love you. What? I, I thought we were going to talk about Bordeaux, man. I mean, well, I mean... <laughs> That would be one of those categories, no? Yeah, so that that's entirely true. And I, I, I you know, if I was to speak completely openly, and you're such a charming guy, maybe I will. Um, when we started off our business investing uh, with with Duclo in the U.S. back in '12, it was it was pretty great because the euro was actually really strong. I mean, if you remember, it was there was a moment where we thought we were going to go all the way up to a dollar fifty, and then. So it was inexpensive for the home office to pay my salary and to pay the lease on our spot and all that. And then amazingly, just as we started becoming profitable, and of course it was not immediate, uh, I'm not going to tell you any fish stories, it took a while, uh, just as we started becoming profitable, the dollar started climbing. And that was amazing because we could report profits in euros that were stronger than they would have been, you know, a year before. So uh, it cuts both ways. I mean, we're an exporter and an importer in the sense that um, just to explain what we do, the company in France is one of the biggest uh, négociant houses. Although, you know, you don't hear the name that often because they're pretty low key, but a big player. And it's not just the Moex wines. Uh, it's basically a house that works with all the crew class A's and and also with smaller producers from the right bank and, and other places around around this big region we call Bordeaux. And so we're an exporter from France, but at the same time, we're an importer. So when we're importing, we're happy to see the dollar strong, at least on this side of the Atlantic. Um, and France can expect to see more sales. Uh, when the euro is strong, our revenue in the U.S. might be a little less interesting, but our cost basis is uh, more attractive. So, But how did it work out that you got there? What was the segue? How did I make it um, over to Duclo? So basically, working at, uh, at my previous employer, I, I worked out of the house. I mean, basically, uh, we were told not to come in to the main office unless there was some sort of important meeting or a producer was coming in and we had to study up on on new wines so basically working out of the house and one day i got a phone call at home and it was a headhunter who was looking for as he put it uh, someone to start an office for a company based in france in bordeaux uh, that was interested in only selling in new york and only to restaurants and this was in 2000, I think the conversation got started in uh, early 2012. And I thought, you've got to be kidding me. Uh, Bordeaux, this category loathed by so many Psalms in New York, and we can get into the reasons, um, viewed as overly expensive, viewed as dusty and crusty and... Uh, with no terroir and just all owned by banks and other financial institutions. And you want me to pitch this to restaurants only where the volumes are humongous, right? You know, I, I always am so happy when I can sell an entire case of something to somebody because so often with more expensive bottles, obviously, we're, we're breaking cases and selling bottles. And it was just this time um, where it, it just was not cool. It was just totally not cool. And I thought, is, do I know, is this one of my buddies pulling one on me? And uh, and I was about to hang up. I, I think I told the guy, look, I've got two kids who are going to be going to college, hopefully sometime in the not too distant future. I got to be able to pay those bills. 
And uh, this fellow who's based out in the Midwest, very nice guy, said to me, look, 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 I, I'm not supposed to tell you, but um, it's the Moex family and they they want to take a stab at reestablishing Bordeaux in the U.S. And, uh, and yeah, so what do you think? And I thought, well... I mean, this is this is a family of very good reputation, of real integrity, who have done a lot for uh, the wines of Bordeaux, particularly on the right bank. And maybe I should just at least speak with them. I mean, you're you're not going to lose anything. You might learn something talking to people at that level in the business. And so uh, I had uh, an initial meeting here in New York with uh, someone from administration, and then. Had a Skype interview, and and then they asked me to come on over to France, and um, and as I was thinking about this, I I was thinking to myself, you know, I I I've done four years in a great job, but I'm starting to spin my wheels a little bit doing the same thing. I've this thing is sort of humming along, um, and this I, I you know, Levy, I have a little bit of ADHD, and I need. And I think that's probably why I did okay on on a trading floor on Wall Street. And I need new projects. And uh, and it was funny because the lady at the time who was running the show in France said to me, "I do not understand. You, you your first job out of university, you worked only for six years at uh, that first bank, and then you only worked for four years at the next institution, and then the last job you had in finance was only three years." And to her. It was as if I was hop skipping and jumping. Whereas on Wall Street, man, if you make it two years uh, in a place and survive, you're you're doing okay. So she didn't understand why I was interested in this job, and I said, "Because I like a challenge." And uh, I went over to France, as I mentioned, and I met Jean Wex. And Jean, at the time, was 27 years old, and he basically said, "Look, we're we're long some Bordeaux. This is what we do." And, uh, and he was very frank. He, he basically said the U S market these last few years for a number of reasons have, have basically been abandoned, right? You know, most property owners have turned their attention to China and, and Asia writ large. And we sort of neglected what was our traditional number one market, or at least one of our biggest markets. And, uh, and he said, I'm, I'm prepared to make a big effort. And the, the business plan's a little bit different. We want to establish an importing company and we want to start distributing ourselves so that we can bring these wines that ha- are of perfect provenance that we either purchased on release, you know, as futures or that, you know, we have access to at the Chateau level. So top, top quality. And we want to get it to the end customer at the most reasonable price um, in great condition. And what was cool about it was he asked me how I would do it. He didn't say, and this is how we're going to do it. He said, you know, this market, what would you suggest? And the conversation became a little bit more philosophical. We sort of took a step back and said, okay, what's, what's the current situation? Not great. Um, I think Chris Adams of Sherry Lehman said, hey, you know, we've got the 70-year-olds and 80-year-olds covered, right? But in terms of the level of Bordeaux drinking at the in the millennial category, there was a little bit of work to do, right? So, and then you can't see Lovey right now, but he's got tears in his eyes. And I think it's laughter or, or is it pain? What is it, <laughs> what is it Lovey? <laughs> I'm the guy suffering this pain, man. <laughs> So he said, what do we do? And I said to him, well, what do you do when people don't know your stuff or even better, don't like it? And they don't even know what they don't like about it because they're not drinking it. And when you think about it, Bordeaux is a really weird category because it gets sold by the Chateau to the brokers. The brokers then sell it to importers and then the importers sell it wherever they can sell it. And oftentimes in a given country, you have multiple importers importing the same stuff. So who's going to go out and do the legwork, especially when you're not getting samples from the properties, and especially, even more so, when you could make a placement and get undercut the next day by another importer distributor who's got the stuff at a price that they feel 
is going to show better than yours. So, you know, besides Chateau and Estates folding up on their Bordeaux sales, and that was that's another story for another day. But but that was a big thing. No? That was a big thing. I mean, everybody knew to go to Chateau and Estates. It was the bank. I mean, I've heard people in Bordeaux call it the bank, and the restaurant folks, the distributors, they knew that if they needed Bordeaux with some age, they could go to him um, over at uh, Seagram's. And uh, and so when they disappeared, people didn't even know where to get this stuff. But the major structural issue is, again, there was no incentive for any distributor importer to open bottles. And as prices were spiraling upwards on you know those 60 or so wines that define the market, in a region that has literally thousands and thousands of producers, many producing very good, humbly priced wine, um, people were, you know, people just weren't, uh, they couldn't make the effort to pull corks. So coming back to how we try to map things out, basically I said to Jean, people haven't tasted this stuff, or if they've tasted it, they've tasted just a little dram uh, when they've opened a bottle table side, to just make sure that the stuff is is correct. So what we need to do is we need to lay a foundation. We need to create some knowledge. And the only way to do that is basically to start pulling some corks and roping some producers to come in, some people who actually can speak to the crowd of folks that we want to speak to and do some presentations and basically build up at least a base of knowledge among the younger professionals so that they could get excited about these wines that, to be perfectly honest, they were bashing. And there was a lot of bashing without really knowing what the full extent of the offer was. So that's where I think my wine and spirits experience really helped because I essentially told Jean, look, the way I'd do it is I'd open a nice office, kind of like a showroom. You know, just a place where people can be comfortable, get a big table, just like we had at, at WNS, and invite people to come in and taste and just lay a little bit of knowledge down so that folks would start becoming familiar with the category. I mean, it was essentially a rebuild. And uh, I, I said to him, listen, we're going to have to dig a bit of a foundation hole here, read financial as well. And invest um, because folks don't know this category. They know it theoretically. And you would be surprised by how many people have gone through all of the theory and on the WSD track, Master Sommelier track, who have never even been to the region. So that was it. It was sort of a education, rebranding type of effort. And John said, okay, cool. How many people do you need? And I told him three, you know, just to make sure that if someone's on vacation, someone's sick, we've got someone at the office. But let's start out modestly and let's try and pull people in by offering them an opportunity that really wasn't out there. So that's that's how we kicked off. John, I mean, where's he coming from? That's, he sounds like a somewhat young guy. So his grandfather was uh, Jean-Pierre Moex, who came, uh, his family came from a rather poor region in France, uh, um, at the beginning of the last century, it was sort of an economic migration for a lot of folks out of this region called Corrèze to the east of, of Bordeaux. And um, it's an interesting because a lot of people from Corrèze have uh, done very well in Bordeaux. Um, just, you know, it was sort of the grit of uh, not quite immigrants, but uh, folks who had to bootstrap it from the beginning. And so, so Jean's grandfather, Jean-Pierre, was essentially a wine salesman. And um, I guess the thing that he's most famous for was seeing the potential of this little Pomerol property that was owned by a lady named Madame Lubat, who was sort of a grand dame in, a, in an appellation that wasn't getting a whole lot of attention. And uh, he worked with her, and she believed that she had the best wine in Bordeaux. And he started traveling through Europe and even to the States to make the case. And eventually, she liked him well enough that she gave him some shares in the company. And over time, he ended up buying out her descendants. And that property uh, is Petrus. And so, 
he established his ownership of that, but he also established a négociant firm in Libourne on the right bank and started, you know, his neighbors saw what Madame Luba was doing and they started asking if he might be interested in selling their wines too. And so he built up this portfolio uh, in Pomerol Saint-Emilion of these producers who, who were looking to get their wines out into the world. He then had two sons. The most well-known is Christian Moex, who was the face of Petrus for the longest time, was the winemaker or property director there for the longest time. And then, but he also had a son named Jean-Francois, who's his eldest son. And Jean, uh, my current owner and boss is the uh, the son of Jean-Francois, the older son. So he is Christian Moex's nephew. And if the grandfather bought the property and established this first négociant firm or brokerage firm, his eldest son basically got a left bank firm, Duclos, the folks that we work for, so that they could have basically a foot on both sides of the rivers, uh, one, you know, again, on the right bank and one in the Medoc. And uh, so, sorry, I don't have a family tree diagram for you, but Christian, right bank, um, Etablissement Jean-Pierre Moex, mostly Pomerol Saint-Emilion, and then Jean-Francois and his son Jean, left bank, Duclos. And that's, you know, that's how Jean got into the business. And I often say that he's the apple that climbed the tree uh, because he is, um, you know, he'll never listen to this podcast. So this is not pandering, but he is such a bright guy. And it's interesting because he has um, worked with this company uh, and he was running it for a few years and now he's backed off. He's given the responsibility at the ripe age of 30 to, uh, to a CEO. And he has a much bigger interest in the day-to-day at Petrus. But he also has other businesses in France, sort of in the hotel, hospitality, restaurant uh, side of the equation. And he, he wants to blaze his own path. And I think the thing that Jean brings to our equation is that he saw that with a, a younger man's eye that Bordeaux was sort of falling off the map. And he did this by coming to New York and partying hard and seeing in restaurants that the stuff was no longer present. You know, if Bordeaux is on a menu, a wine list, um, somehow, even though some lists are alphabetical, it was, it was, it, it took the place of the Z, right? It's like, you know, there was Zimbabwean wine. Well, there isn't. So let's put Bordeaux back there. Right. And he decided that things had to change. Otherwise, um, the cornerstone of of the family business was gonna was gonna have a little bit of a hard time. You explained quite well what you saw in New York, and then you've explained now that he had some some view of that. But what do people that you work with in Bordeaux think of what what's happened over the last ten or fifteen years? I mean, what's the consensus about what has changed and why? Sure. Well, I think the property owners, if we'll start sort of at the source, the property owners scratch their heads a bit and say, oh my goodness, you know, the U.S., um, why is it that uh, Bordeaux isn't doing as well anymore in the U.S.? And, um, and you know, when you really scratch the surface and you talk to people who are hard-nosed about it, they say, well, you know, we've spent a lot of time in Asia and uh, we've, we've kind of let it get away from us. We should have been a little bit more conscientious about taking care of our traditional market over here on the other side of of the Atlantic. Um, so they recognize that it was, they're taking their eyes off the ball. They also recognize that um, they're victims of their own success in a way, because you talk about the first growths and you talk about the other crew class A's and listen, uh, the, there's no questioning it. There's been a sp- upward spiral in prices. And to anyone who says, well, yeah, you know, that's avarice and, hey, hold on a second. Um, I worked in markets, right? And I worked in commodity markets. You don't get to a price without two parties being involved. There have to be sellers and there have to be buyers. And they ain't grown any more Bordeaux land. So as countries are developing and coming up the, the ladder, you know, the so-called BRICS, 
with China being the big letter in that in that one, there's been more demand for the top end stuff. I, I think again at the producer level, there's a desire to do more uh, to try and show an appreciation for the U.S. market, and we've been the beneficiaries of that. We've had so many really wonderful uh, producers come over and stick to our uh, sort of plan for them, which is always to focus on what differentiates them rather than the history, the lore, the generations. But really, what is it that's going on at their particular property? What are they doing? What are the particularities of their terroir? And they're more than willing to do that. But they they recognize that that is needed because, again, uh, Bordeaux in a world where more and more categories have come to light, and especially in this town, right? In New York, and we have to say in, in San Francisco and in Chicago and uh, such places where you really have a great Psalm culture, it's normal that people want to go and find new things and and shine a light on those things and, and in some sense make them their own so the category itself has become a little bit of a lumbering giant in that faced with all these other contenders uh and it hasn't really been able to keep that that it factor that wow factor that new factor so they recognize that and i think they're trying to wrap their heads around how to deal with that so i haven't heard you mention the word parker which is a word i would have thought would have come up in the rise and somewhat decline of the market for Bordeaux. It's interesting. I, I work in this, this universe called on-premise, the on-premise universe. And, uh, and I worked in, uh, in a sort of a different publication uh, before I, I joined the commercial side of the business. So that is, that's a name that, that plays an important role in the modern history of the region. Uh, but at, our level of speaking with professionals, you know, the only thing that I think we're all interested in is how the wine is tasting uh, when we're tasting it together and what the fundamental story is behind each one of the wines that we taste. So, you know, I think that um, the evolution of Parker and his move to Asia is representative of, of what he is good at, which is basically helping people who are looking for information and a guide and I guess a a system to understand and rank wines. Yeah, uh, very effective. And I think he helped out a lot of budding U.S. wine consumers. I mean, when you, you stop and you think about it, when did our parents start getting into wine? Um, if you're from an Italian family, I'm probably asking you the wrong question. But Wine culture in the U.S. has only really developed over, what, the last 30 years or so? I mean, really developed and taken on steam. So, you know, Parker did a great job at the inception, if you will. And and now I don't know that, um, at least speaking for for ourselves, um, it's, just, it's just not something that we really focus on because we're dealing with professionals who have – their skills and have their lexicon and their you know touchstones and they they don't need that sort of that crutch right uh we're talking with folks who know how to taste so i have this pet theory that parker encouraged more ripeness and lower yields and uh, encouraged people to declassify wines into second wines and third wines in bordeaux and what that ended up doing was meaning that there was less of the Grand Vent in terms of volume of bottles. And that escalated prices because people were making much less of the top wine. And so that top wine became incrementally much more expensive. Yeah, the supply went down. I think that it has to be said that we're in a region that has a variable climate and vintages matter. And uh, for better or for worse, and for better, obviously, we're very happy to see differences. I mean, that's what makes it fun and exciting. Um, so there were times, uh, and all you have to do is look at the 70s, where people just were getting in their crop and 
if it looked like it was going to rain, you know, just get it in. Um, we'll sell it anyway. The brand name is strong. It doesn't really matter. And what I think Parker did more than anything is he created um, this expectation. And we can say he created a style expectation of for greater ripeness, more alcohol and the rest. But, okay, that's pushed to the extreme. What he created was an expectation that people would get their grapes ripe. <laughs> pretty good baseline expectation. And he held people's feet to the fire for what was then a very, very large Bordeaux market by ranking these wines. And let me tell you, you can say what you want about the Bordelais, but there's one thing that they most definitely are, and that is competitive. Uh, and they want to beat their neighbor. Let me tell you, there's nothing like a Hatfield and McCoy relationship you know, with families that have been sitting across a field at 50 paces uh, for a few centuries. They want to kick each other's butts. And I, I will probably get some comments back from some producers on that one, but you all know who you are. Um, the ranking thing and the competition thing got people much more focused. And we're seeing it today. I mean, if you need an, uh, an objective sort of example, just look at how these these futures campaigns happen. I mean, they drag on. And the reason they drag on is that everyone's waiting for their neighbor to come out first. I mean, it's a game of poker because you don't want to go out at a lower price than the guy next door if you think your wine is better, which invariably you're going to think. So Parker held everyone's feet to the fire. And I think the region was all the better for it. And I remember as a banker, we reached that point where every you know everything always goes too far, right? The pendulum always swings too far. And we had these 200% new French oak you know, garagiste projects on the right bank. And it, it just became like, you know, chewing wood. But the, when, when you sort of sort through the ashes and, and, and hopefully this Phoenix is rising, you, you see that um, there are no underripe vintages in Bordeaux anymore. I mean, or at least at the top level, you mentioned selection and yeah, that has certainly had an impact on price. Um, and everyone is trying to make a better first wine to beat their neighbor. Uh, but even in a vintage like 13, I mean, 13 was a disaster in terms of the weather. People didn't go too far. I mean, I think that the last vintage where people went too far was 07, where, as we say in French, there was a little bit of bodybuilding where they, they try to shore up juice that wasn't exactly there with maybe a little too much oak. and Invariably, I, I will get sort of caramel flavors on not all 07s. There's, there are always people who are ahead of the game. But that was the last vintage where people sort of made these wines that were, because of their underripeness or their difficulty in getting there, they went a little bit too far with, with the makeup. But then you, you, you move on to vintages after that where um, the weather wasn't necessarily the best. And again, 13 is a great example. We have a Burgundian vintage in Bordeaux in 13. People did not over-extract. They were very careful with the wood. The agriculture, I think, is probably the biggest story in Bordeaux these days. Uh, we've moved out in so many cases with, uh, with you know, the conscious folks. We've moved out of the cellar and into the vineyard. Um, more and more producers are starting their visits out in the vineyard. And I, I think that that focus on getting physiological ripeness, getting those skins ripe has become the really the legacy of Parker and of Roland. And, and say what you will about Roland, but the guy wants to make wine with ripe, ripe grapes. The weather patterns in Bordeaux have been improving and uh, they've been they've been they become more favorable if sometimes more volatile. But you know, we're definitely getting more warmth. And so that's that's been helpful. Is the Bordeaux consumer now, you know, the one that's buying wine from you, are they very vintage conscious or no? Let's face it. It used to be a sort of a wink uh, and smile misnomer to call a vintage, a bad vintage, a restaurant vintage. Um, but I think the truth is now that some of these more elegant vintages read not as hot weather, not as ripe, not as high in alcohol. Some of these these underappreciated by your traditional critics vintages 
are exactly the vintages that we want to see in restaurants um, in their first 10, 15 years of life because they've got bright acidities. They're not stacked and packed. Uh, they go with food. And so our conversations revolve around drinkability. And yes, of course, everyone has to be practical. New York City has high rents to pay. And if the customer wants 09, you should have some 09. And that's, that's always an easy sell because all you have to do is look at the list and say, 09 at that price, that appellation, sent to me all market, that's going to work for me. But where the fun comes in is these conversations about drinkability. Uh, I mean, if you put yourself in our position and say, okay, here's a, let's do the classic case study. Here's a category that's getting no, no pull. Um, how do you get people excited, right? What's the, and you think, okay, well, what's the gateway drug, right? I mean, give them something that, that is delicious, that is reasonably priced, that maybe, maybe relies a little bit on cachet. I mean, Saint-Emilion, you know that everything in Saint-Emilion is basically Grand Cru, basically? I mean, it's a function of your yields. Saint-Emilion is just such a wonderful, magical name for, for uh, the consumer. But just give people really delicious stuff that is reasonably priced. And that's how you expand the category. Once you've gotten that first rung on the ladder, people are willing to explore a little bit further. And the consumer doesn't really know Bordeaux either. I mean, if we're talking about our little inner circle of folks who are pros and, and study every last appellation on the planet – they know what Bordeaux is, at least theoretically, and hopefully they have some experience tasting this stuff. But the consumer sure as heck, if they know it, they know it as the expensive stuff, right? So that's, to me, probably the thing that we're most proud of is getting people introduced, not even reintroduced, but a lot of people just introduced to this thing that they thought was unapproachable, overly expensive, difficult to pronounce. Yeah. Now that you've been doing it a couple of years, have you seen overall trends in terms of numbers? Like, is there something there you're like, oh, okay, this is moving up or this is moving down or sideways? I've seen great growth at the value end of the offering and a real compression at the higher end. And that doesn't necessarily um, bother me because I think, again, more than anything, what we're hoping to do is get people introduced to the category. Um, Bordeaux Reds are well ahead of any other type of Bordeaux. I mean, sweet wine has been stable forever. But one, one trend that we've seen creeping up that I, I really like is the interest in white Bordeaux. And... It's, it's this category of Bordeaux that people don't really know, which is an advantage in, again, in a market where people are always looking to uncover new and interesting things. And yet it's, um, it's a category that has existed in Bordeaux forever. Uh, Bordeaux, right? Edge of waters. I mean, got a bunch of big rivers, estuary in the Atlantic, a lot of great seafood. So... I will predict that we will see Bordeaux whites move up a point or two over the next couple of years, at least in, in the community and the restaurant community. I think um, people will discover it and, and probably get more interested in it. What else do you predict over the next 10 years? I mean, what's going to be the way forward? Uh, satellite Appalachians, particularly on the right bank where the quality of the wine on these quite a bit smaller properties being produced by folks who are trying to push the edge in their in their agriculture and just try and achieve great quality in their Merlots and, and Cabernet Francs. I, I think that that is an area that can get folks at the uh, restaurant level super excited because A, classic region, B, higher and higher quality, C, margin opportunity. Uh, there's a lot of really good wine that's priced inexpensively outside of the major appellations. With that said, and if I want to keep my job, um, the major appellations, the crew class A's, 
are producing these uh, second wines and third wines that are just brilliant. I mean, you know, a particular property in Saint-Julien that has an orange label on their main wine, their third wine, the Petit Caillou, that thing at 20 bucks wholesale is killer. And yeah, maybe 20 bucks is not the most accessible price point. But again, we're talking about wine from one of the best patches of, of gravel on the planet. On the other side of the rivers, you're going to see more and more wines that are wholesaling between 12 and 15 bucks that will just blow your socks off. And folks are really doing a much, much better job of uh, producing for the international market. Philippe Newlin is bullish about the future of Bordeaux. Thank you very much for being here today. Listen, Levy, anytime, man. And you you make a mean cup of tea. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Philippe Newlin of Duclos La Vinicule, the Bordeaux distributor based in New York. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.